0: another edition of the Little Patients Big Medicine podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jason Woods. This episode is actually a re-release of the very first thing that I recorded for the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine website. I asked a longtime mentor of mine, Dr. Halden Scott, to come on and talk about the use of lactate measurement in the care of pediatric sepsis patients in the emergency department. She's one of the leading experts in just that question. Interestingly, shortly after we recorded this and released it, the Society of Critical Care Medicine released some updated guidelines which discussed the use of lactate in pediatric sepsis patients. So we recorded a little bit of an update and I'm putting this back out there because it continues to be an interesting question. This will be part one and it's a general overview of her research and the available evidence. And then part two will be about a 10 minute update on what the guidelines say and how that affects or changes how we thought about lactate. Dr. Halden Scott is an assistant professor of pediatrics and pediatric emergency medicine at Children's Hospital Colorado and the University of Colorado. She is here today because she is one of the premier researchers regarding the emergency care of pediatric patients with sepsis and specifically the use and utility of lactate measurement in that care. In addition, she was a member of the most recent PALS guidelines writing group as well as a handful of other pediatric sepsis guideline writing committees. So we all know that recently there were some updated changes to the adult sepsis definitions that have sparked a lot of discussion and a lot of controversy. Can you talk to us a little bit today about what the pediatrics definitions are and whether there's any likely similar changes to them coming?
1: Yes, of course. So there have not been any revisions or updates to the pediatric sepsis definitions along the lines of the recent adult updates that just happened. The pediatric sepsis definitions were in line with what the old adult sepsis definitions were. So many people may be familiar with these already, of course, with age-specific modifications to what is considered normal and abnormal. But as of now, the going existing standard for pediatric sepsis definitions comes from a committee set of definitions published in 2005 by Goldstein and colleagues. And these consist of SIRS definitions with the same abnormalities in heart rate, white blood cell count, respiratory rate, and temperature that were used in adult guidelines, severe sepsis being SIRS plus organ dysfunction, and septic shock being all of the above plus either hypotension or elevated lactate.
0: And that paper also laid out how we have traditionally defined organ dysfunction in children.
1: Yes, and they are the formal definitions that were really mainly intended for clinical trial enrollment so that there could be a very precise definition of what organ dysfunction was. And those are still the only existing definitions on the books.
0: So we have also had some issues with the structure and the the concept of SIRS in pediatrics for a long time. And Halden and I actually together published a paper looking at a year of visits to the pediatric emergency room and patients who at any time during their ER stay met SIRS qualifications. Because we typically do not have white blood cell count results immediately upon entry to the ER, that primarily meant that we were looking at combination of fever, tachycardia, and tachypnea. Halden, can you talk to us about how well that performed for finding any sort of critical illness?
1: Yes. So for this study, we used only the vital sign criteria for SERVs, and we wanted to find out how good this was as a tool of pulling out the most severely ill patients. For this, we defined our outcome as critical illness, meaning a requirement for vasoactive agents or positive pressure ventilation. Of course, there are other forms of critical illness and other patients who might not quite meet those thresholds who need attentive care. But we thought at a minimum, this is the most severely ill group of patients, that SIRS definitely should perform well at detecting this group. And what we found was that even though there was a very small, statistically significant, increased relative risk of having that outcome in patient with SIRS, when we looked at the sensitivity, it actually was quite poor. It was 22%. In addition, it had what is clinically intuitive to most of us that it has a high false positive rate. But that is a little bit less concerning to me than this problem of sensitivity. Yes, a high false positive rate can mean increased resource utilization. But if that was helping us to detect every critically ill child, one life saved might be worth quite a lot of false positives. But with a sensitivity of 22%, this is really a terrible screening test. It may have other uses or other ways you can use vital signs to help gauge risk. But SIRS as a standalone screen for pediatric sepsis or pediatric critical illness is very poorly performing.
0: All right. So similar to the concerns brought up in the adult sepsis 3 definitions regarding the utility or non-utility of SIRS, we have some of those same issues. However, we don't have any updated Definitions. So is there anything that you can recommend as far as changing those definitions? Or if there aren't new guidelines coming, do we have any other ideas about how we should define the sepsis condition in pediatrics?
1: So although we only have this one formal set of definitions, there are other ways that patients with sepsis can be identified. There are those formal organ dysfunction and study enrollment criteria. And then also we have billing and coding data. And that is a very easy way to identify patients from large administrative data sets. And then finally, there's the clinical impression of the treating clinicians. So there has been some nice work by Scott Weiss looking at first in a single-center study, and then along with Julie Fitzgerald and colleagues throughout the world, the Sprout study, which was a point prevalence study of pediatric sepsis in ICUs around the world, and they considered these three definitions, coding definitions, the impression of the treating clinician, and the formal Goldstein definitions, and looked at the groups of patients that each of these defined. And as you would imagine, there are some patients who meet sepsis by all of these criteria and some who only meet some of them in a kind of overlapping Venn diagram. Each of these definitions probably has a different use and different utility, but it would be nice to try to be able to align these more in the future.
0: So, Halden, one of the reasons that I asked you here today is that one of your particular focuses in your research has been on lactate and how it could be useful in the pediatric ER as a marker for sepsis or eventual critical care need. Can you tell us a little bit about what lactate is and where it comes from and why we might even think it would be helpful?
1: Right. We have probably all learned in medical school that lactate is produced through anaerobic metabolism, and it is. So, the most straightforward way of thinking of lactate in sepsis is that there is poor perfusion to the tissues. The tissues run through their anaerobic metabolism cycles and produce lactate. And if we can improve perfusion to the tissues, we may be able to improve lactate. Um, But there are a lot of other reasons that lactate rises in sepsis as well. For one, it is cleared by both the liver and the kidney. So damage to those organs may cause lactate to rise. And in addition, there has been some work demonstrating that it may actually be a compensatory metabolic response to the sepsis syndrome to produce lactate even under aerobic conditions. So while some of it may be controlled by perfusion, some of it may be actually happening on the cellular level and be a metabolic process that is not entirely within our control, but nonetheless may still be an indicator of the severity of sepsis going on.
0: So the data on lactate and its use in the pediatric ER as far as sepsis is relatively new. In pediatric ER, we tend to copy a lot of what we're doing from what the adults have done before us. So do we know anything about what the adult studies have shown lactate can be used for?
1: So starting in the early 2000s, a number of adult emergency physicians did research on lactate in adult sepsis, and they kind of laid the groundwork for some of the pediatric studies that we're going to discuss today. So they found that an elevated lactate was associated with increased risk of mortality in sepsis. And then they did studies looking at the idea of lactate clearance or change in lactate, showing that not only is an elevated initial lactate bad, but that lactate that fails to decrease during initial resuscitation is also associated with worsening outcomes. They have included lactate in multivariate analyses and subgroup analyses showing that lactate is an independent marker of poor outcome. Even if you group patients into those who are hypotensive and those who are not, even among hypotensive patients, having a high lactate worsens their outcome. And among non-hypotensive patients also having a high lactate will worsen their outcome. So this is sort of the backdrop in which we started to look at whether lactate could be used in a similar manner in early hours of diagnosis and treatment of pediatric sepsis.
0: So how do we get from there to, to here? Why are we talking about lactate in the pediatric ER?
1: When we started looking at this question, There was not data on lactate in early infection in children. There was data from the ICUs where investigators before me had shown that in very small, very sick cohorts of children in the ICU, an elevated lactate was associated with increased risk of mortality. We wanted to find out, can it help us risk stratify in a pre-ICU phase of illness? Can it help us find the patients who might go to the ICU or who require more intensive therapy? So the first study we did to look at this was published in 2012 in Academic Emergency Medicine, and we looked at the utility of a single early lactate measurement in pediatric patients with SIRS. This preceded our study in which we later decided SIRS weren't that useful, but we took this as a group of patients who might be at risk for sepsis. And the outcome we were looking at as our primary outcome was organ dysfunction. We collected venous lactate levels during usual clinical care and looked at how well it predicted the development of organ dysfunction within the first 24 hours. We found that patients with a lactate level greater than 4 millimoles per liter had a statistically significant increased relative risk of 5.5 of developing organ dysfunction compared to those who were less than 4.
0: So, the risk of developing organ dysfunction, if you looked at those with elevated lactate above four, was 5.5 times that of the the ones with lactate less than four, that's a pretty big increase.
1: Yes, it certainly began to build the case that this is a useful risk stratifier and may perform similarly in children than it does in adults. But it's not big enough in and of itself to fully tell us everything we want to know about lactate.
0: So you mentioned that uh, some of the adult studies show that it can be used as a dynamic marker where you can look at clearance or normalization. Have we done any work on that?
1: Yes, that was our next study. So our next study was of a smaller, sicker cohort of patients in which we wanted to look at changes in lactate over time. We adopted adult definitions for this study. So we defined lactate clearance as a decrease of 10% or more in lactate in the first few hours of care, and we defined lactate normalization as achieving a level of less than 2 after the first few hours of care, I was being intentionally vague saying the first few hours of care because for this study, we had a goal of measuring lactate two and four hours after the initial lactate was measured. And in most patients, we got both of those, and some we just got four, and some we just got two. But of note, this is much earlier than it had been measured. Most adult studies were repeating lactate sometime in the first six hours of care but didn't specifically tie down to a specific interval.
0: So what were the results of that?
1: So we enrolled 77 children who had severe sepsis in the emergency department. So there was clinical suspicion for infection, and they already had acute organ dysfunction. We defined our outcome as persistent organ dysfunction that lasted 48 hours or more. And we found that patients who normalized their lactate were less likely to have persistent organ dysfunction. Specifically, what we found was that the relative risk of persistent organ dysfunction in those who normalized was 0.46.
0: Yeah, so you essentially cut the the risk of organ dysfunction in half if you were able to normalize the lactate.
1: Exactly. Lactate clearance was not a significant finding, but the relative risk was less. Almost every patient cleared their lactate, so we had a very small group of non-lactate clearance, which is likely why this finding wasn't significant. It makes sense that normalization is a better goal to shoot for because it is harder to do. If you start with a lactate of 4, to clear your lactate, you just have to get to 3.6. And to normalize, you have to go all the way to 2.
0: And the thing that I thought was most interesting, which you touched on briefly, is that if patients were going to have lactate normalization, almost all did by the 2-hour mark after their initial.
1: That's right. Um, Although we did not have 2 and 4 hours for everyone, we had it for nearly everyone in the study and nearly everyone who normalized had normalized by two hours. So that's really useful if you're trying to speed up care in the emergency department and a patient is looking better and you want to see how they're doing. It may be that two hours is a good enough window to do a good initial resuscitation and confirm whether the patient is going in the right direction and help you make an earlier disposition along the same lines if you're not sure if your initial approach to therapy and fluid and vasopressors is moving in the right direction, can consider rechecking as early as two hours.
0: All right, now let's get to the most exciting thing that I asked you here to talk about today. Hot off the presses, Halden published an article in JAMA PEDS in March titled Association Between Early Lactate Levels and 30-Day Mortality in Clinically Suspected Sepsis in Children. First off, Halden, can you tell us why this study was different from any of the other ones we've talked about today?
1: Right. So this was our first study to use mortality as an outcome. A number of position papers have been written about pediatric sepsis saying the mortality rate is significant for a pediatric illness, but it's still low enough that single center studies are unlikely to be effective. We need to do mostly multicenter work to be able to look at mortality as our outcome. But in this study, we were able to do that because we had had our clinical sepsis registry running for several years. And so now we had a lot of observational data to be able to look at this question of mortality.
0: And you bring up a really important point that just in general, kids as a population have really bad outcomes less often than the adults do. So we're looking at something that is already a little bit more rare.
1: That's not to say it is not as important a problem for children as it is for adults. Children aren't supposed to die. If a child dies, the sort of number of years of life lost magnifies the effects of our low mortality rates. So these are still really important public health crises, and sepsis is one of the few things that that regularly does kill both previously healthy children and children with chronic medical conditions.
0: And of note, it's always at the top or near the top of the list of conditions that kill the most children every year. So it's something that we really need to focus on. How did you actually go about studying this?
1: For this study, we wanted to look at the association between early lactate levels and mortality because there has still been a lot of debate and question about whether it actually is helpful or useful to be looking at lactate in the emergency department for children.
0: So can you give us an idea about how you designed the study? What were your entry criteria and and what was the outcome?
1: So for this study, we looked at children who had clinical sepsis in the emergency department. And our main outcome was death from any cause within 30 days. We used what are the current clinical guidelines for pediatric sepsis care, which is to identify children through decreased mental status and perfusion. So all of our clinicians, physicians, advanced practice providers, nurses, have been taught to identify patients with suspected infection and decreased mental status or perfusion and initiate a sepsis response to them. That gets them automatically enrolled in our sepsis registry. And in addition, we have mechanisms for finding all of the missed patients through review of all of our ICU patients and pulling them into the registry, too.
0: Meaning that outside of formal definitions, your study also included any patient whom the clinicians were worried about. And that is a kind of a nebulous definition, but one that we rely on a lot, and especially in the pediatric ER.
1: And this is really the group in whom the question of diagnosis is important. It's much less sick than is included in many ICU-based studies or included in studies that have strict enrollment criteria. But this is the patients who pose clinical dilemmas to us all the time. We looked at lactate that was measured clinically. So if a clinician didn't measure it, they were excluded from the study. By this time, it was part of the routine clinical care of sepsis at our site for clinicians to measure lactate when they were initiating a sepsis evaluation.
0: So what were the results? Was there an association between an elevated lactate level early on in care and mortality at 30 days?
1: Yes. Fortunately, mortality was low in the study, as was the number of patients who had an elevated lactate. We considered an elevated lactate, again, to be greater than or equal to four millimoles per liter, and only 103 patients had a level that high, and of those five died. So that was a 4.8% mortality rate the vast majority of the patients so almost 1200 patients had a lactate less than 4 and 20 of these patients died within 30 days for a mortality rate of 1.7 so overall that gave us a odds ratio of 3.0 unadjusted 3.26 adjusted very similar both of which were statistically significant it almost felt a little bit academic to me to prove that lactate was associated with mortality, but I'm glad that we were able to do that. But in addition to the study, we looked at a lot of other outcomes that are significant, severe, and more common than mortality. And we looked not just at greater than or less than 4 millimoles per liter, but we actually looked at low, intermediate, and high, so less than 2, 2 to 4, and greater than 4, And for every one of these measures, the higher lactate group a patient was in, the higher their risk of having that outcome. So that included everything from hospital and PICU admission to endotracheal intubation, vasoactive agent use, prolonged length of stay. So although the mortality association and outcome is probably the most important, it really is associated with Almost everything we care about
0: one of the other questions that I had is how do we actually measure lactate in particular? How did you measure it in the study do we need to worry about having a free-flowing line or did you measure it? Just however the nurses were already doing it
1: right this this part may not be news to providers of care for adults who? Have been using venous lactate for a while But for pediatricians, I always get a question about this, and the answer is yes, we used a tourniquet, and yes, the results were still valid. In pediatric residency, we spent a lot of time drawing metabolic labs, bent over the beds of neonates trying to get free-flowing ammonia and lactate and pyruvate, and while that may matter for those metabolic purposes, in general, if this test is going to be useful, it has to be useful in the way that we collect blood. So every one of my studies was Uh, drawn during a clinical blood draw, which in the pediatric ED usually meant with a tourniquet and with a nurse trying to simultaneously place an IV. There have been studies in healthy subjects and in OR patients looking at how long a tourniquet can be on before the lactate will rise what things might contribute to false elevation. And it turns out you probably could leave a tourniquet on about 10 minutes without falsely changing your lactate. And the way to most likely end up with a falsely elevated lactate level is to just leave a vial sitting out. If it goes on ice or is run right away, it is unlikely to be falsely elevated. Most importantly, it worked. You know, these studies were done in the way that we normally collect blood, and it's a robust enough marker that with these methods, it still worked.
0: I really like that choice when you were designing the study that you decided to measure it in the way that we would typically draw all the other labs so there wasn't some other artificial process or some new change that we had to do.
1: So there are a few things to be aware of that could falsely elevate a lactate level. Albuterol is one thing that directly increases lactate production without necessarily indicating an increased severity of illness. So if at all possible I try to avoid measuring a lactate unless there's another good reason to in a patient on a lot of albuterol. Similarly, exogenous epinephrine will increase production of lactate by increasing the shunting of the metabolic pathways towards the production of lactate. So after a patient has started on epinephrine, it's important just to bear in mind that it may cause some increase in your lactate level.
0: Before we get to the summary of this, I'm going to ask everybody's least favorite question. Are there any known limitations or any particular concerns about the study that we should be aware of?
1: Right. So I mentioned that patients were only included in the study if their clinicians had already measured a lactate level. In some ways, that introduces selection bias, probably selecting for a more severely ill group of patients. But at the same time, this actually reflects kind of good use of clinical pretest probability. So patients were excluded who did not have a lactate measured. And I looked at their rates of admission and death, and they were all lower than the included cohort. So the included cohort was more severely ill than those who did not have a lactate measured. And that's probably appropriate. So it's okay to continue using your judgment. <laughs>
0: I think that's a fantastic way to put it for most things that we're, we're dealing with.
1: So another important limitation to the studies that I have done so far is that they're small and they're all single center. So in and of themselves, they may not be such a robust platform to stand on. However, one thing that has made me more likely and more likely to convince my colleagues to bring this into routine clinical practice is that it's corroborated by enormous amounts of adult research and experience with lactate use. While I have a few single-center studies, there are many multi-center studies in adults, both observational using lactate and prospective using lactate, that demonstrate that elevated lactate is associated with worse outcome lactate clearance and normalization are useful dynamic markers of the success of early resuscitation and that bringing lactate into care bundles can improve outcomes. So this is a reason not only at our own center but at many pediatric centers around the country the measurement of lactate is a routine part of the emergency care of pediatric sepsis at this point.
0: So my last question for you today is what's up next for lactate measurement in pediatric sepsis in the ER?
1: I think there are a few exciting directions to go from here. One is that although I think lactate is great, I think it's not the final story. There are patients who are very sick who will be missed by lactate, and there's probably differences among patients with lactate of the same level. So really developing a better diagnostic and screening and prognostic scores that incorporate a range of variables available to the clinician will be important for increasing our diagnostic performance in emergency care of pediatric sepsis. So in addition, all of my research so far has been observational really looking at what happens to lactate levels, but not examining the issues of how the act just of measuring might affect care and affect clinician performance and affect outcome. There have been some studies from adults that show the addition of measuring and remeasuring lactate to a care bundle improves outcomes, and we haven't yet done that work in pediatrics.
0: And I'd be really excited about that. We in the pediatric ER don't often insert central lines and measure SCVO2. And so outside of the typical clinical measurements, we're still looking for something to be able to track. In summary, data in pediatric sepsis regarding lactate is overall less abundant than in adult. But what we can say is that across all pediatric patients with clinically suspected sepsis, Presenting to the ED, a lactate greater than 4 indicates a higher risk of death, higher rates of both hospital and ICU admission, longer lengths of stay in the hospital and the ICU, and higher rates of endotracheal intubation. It is not a particularly good screening test and should only be used in the appropriate patient. In addition, lactate is still just one marker among many clinical data points to guide the care of these patients. Well, thanks for being here today, Halton. I really appreciate you giving us the time to come and talk about something that's near and dear to my heart. And to all the listeners out there, thank you so much for downloading and listening to this podcast. There will certainly be more, and I look forward to getting any feedback from you on things that you'd like to hear about or ways that we can improve this has been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd. You can also email me through Gmail at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com. And I'm also a semi-regular contributor to the Pearl section of the ALEM website, www.aliem.com. Thank you for listening.